www stands for World Wide Web, but the Internet, as envisioned in the early 1990s, has devolved into fragments. Foreign actors in many sections of the Internet actively seek to deny the United States and its allies free use of the Internet, even to foster civil unrest and violence. My next guest says this reality ought to be more baked into U.S. foreign policy. He was part of a task force looking at this by the Council on Foreign Relations, former CIA intelligence officer Guillermo Christensen. Now with the law firm K&L Gates joins me now. Mr. Christensen, good to have you on. My pleasure. Please, it's Guillermo. Just Guillermo. Okay, we'll take note of that. Tell us what the task force was looking at, trying to, I guess, gauge and maybe shake the government into the reality of how the Internet actually has developed or devolved, depending on your point of view. Let me level set. So the Council on Foreign Relations is a think tank that has a very active studies program. It's based in New York, but has a very active uh, Washington, D.C. program and has a lot of members, but also uh, many who are fellows who do studies there. I was actually one of the fellows years ago uh, as the CIA fellow. And periodically, there's an issue that the council believes needs to have a deeper dive. And that's when they usually put together a task force, which goes off and does its own thing. So the views of the task force are the views of the members of the task force to the extent that they agreed on them. They're not the views necessarily of the council or any government agency or anything like that. In this case, the, the question we were dealing with was um, obviously the, the state of the Internet writ large is, is a cause of concern. Um, it has become the, a, a battlefield for all kinds of combat. I was last night actually at a, at a very interesting event with the Kiev Star. This is one of the telecom uh, providers in Ukraine. And we were talking about what they've endured because of the Internet and, and also some of the success. But the, but the Internet is a battlefield. It's also our economy. Um, so we're, we're in kind of this uh, um, challenging moment where we are making incredible headway in a digital economy just as sure. the potential for that to be interdicted is very high. And when the task force looked at the Internet, just briefly describe for us what the Internet is in reality, not this World Wide Web, or it is worldwide, but it's really balkanized. And tell us more about what it looks like in light of the study that you did. Yeah, one of the things that we came to conclude very quickly is this idea that the, the global Internet is this free space for sharing views, sharing information has uh, has largely passed us by because, in fact, this this global Internet era is is over with. And that's one of our first findings and, and recommendations is we all need to basically understand that that's the case. And, and for the U.S. government to change a lot of the policies that have been premised on that understanding. So if you go back 10, 15 years, U.S. government's views was that, and it was an optimistic view, unfortunately, the world didn't uh, didn't turn out that way, that an open, free global internet would bring great advances to everyone in, in lots of ways. The reality is the internet has become the opposite of that in many respects, and, and I can touch on that a little bit more, but there, that's one of the key findings is we need to recalibrate a lot of our policies as the U.S. government to accept this reality however noxious it may it may be. Yes, and one characteristic of it that you pointed out is, say, a nation like China, which clearly controls all of the information coming in and going out, and so in some ways has shut itself off and has its own Internet effectively. Nevertheless, it has the ability to reach out to the open Internet. They've almost created one-way 
pathways, and that's how they can launch some of the attacks and so on. Absolutely. Whereas the Chinese have built their own, and you talk about the Chinese firewall, the Great Wall of China, that has helped them to build an internet that is largely isolated and protected from the rest of the global internet. Our system has not headed that way. We remain very open, very accessible to any other nation or anyone on the that wants to access our network of networks, which is what the internet effectively is. And that's one of the that's one of the main challenges. We kind of think about this, if you think of the global torch of freedom hanging from the Lady Liberty's hands, it hasn't really been that convincing an argument for many other countries. China, Russia, but there are many others. We're speaking with Guillermo Christensen, a partner at the law firm K&L Gates and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations Task Force looking at the Internet. And the task force came up with a long list of policy recommendations and better practices, many of which affect the federal government. Review those quickly for us. What should change now? One of the things that we honed in on was that data has to be understood as a great source of geopolitical power and competition and it's central to economic security and national security. And one of the things that effectively has happened in the last five years or so has been that the, the, the involvement of the United States in many trade negotiations and other ways in which we could build a consensus with like-minded countries has declined rapidly. And so we call on that to be something that is addressed and pursued more strongly the reality is we're not talking here about, a, some people say, a democracy or, or those countries that are, are democratic and on the Internet. A lot of times we have a, we have very strong shared interests with countries that might not fall in that category, but do favor a digital economy that's relatively unfettered. And so there is some, uh, I think there's a strong argument here that we make that our coalitions should be structured differently than people have traditionally thought of in this context. And we've talked about Russia and China, primarily North Korea, you point out, is also a pretty bad actor with respect to the Internet. What about the, and of course, France, Great Britain, Germany, that's a whole other class. Those are the people we can trust and and deal with. But what about marginal places like Vietnam, Laos, Thailand, I know maybe to some extent Singapore, nations like that that are peripheral to some of the bad actors and whose forms of government are not really all that like our own. What about those nations? Can they be maybe brought into the correct sphere? That's that's exactly the kind of examples that I would look at. Um, South America, Brazil, for example, you know, one of the richest and, and frankly, most fascinating digital economies out there. Those are the countries that we should be striving to build a consensus around what a digital economy and a, and a global internet post this version that we're dealing with right now looks like, because we have a lot of shared interests with them. Those are countries where if, for example, you have criminal hackers, you can go and find them and extradite them. They will cooperate with us, unlike, say, Russia or China. So there's a very basic difference of understanding there that is key to building that kind of consensus. What else? Tell us some more recommendations, because that was a pretty long list. It is. And and the other area that I think is really important, this is one that I am a strong proponent uh, for, is we need to think of cybercrime more as a national security risk. And this is this one is definitely one that gets uh, some controversy. What we mean by that is not that we should start using military force in order to deal with cybercrime. On the contrary, we need to understand that cybercrime right now is having a very serious impact across our economy. We're seeing with ransomware, which I'm sure you've discussed on the show, we're seeing ransomware hitting hospitals. 
critical infrastructure. But we're also seeing a lot of money that's being siphoned out of our economy through cybercrime. And the tools to fight it sometimes tend to bleed over into more of the national security area because the bad guys are hiding often in countries that are adverse to us, like Russia and like China. And so we need to become, uh, I think think we need to treat it more like a national security risk and consider ways in which we can employ a more concerted strategy on that side. And just a final question on the military side of this. Of course, there is a cyber command and the information domain is considered by the military now, per its doctrine, a zone of operation, just like the air, sea, and space, and so on. Do you think that the doctrine and the practice of the U.S. military is strong enough or robust enough to meet the challenges as you've laid out? So I think that that we have gotten much better on what I would call the doctrine, trying to understand how to employ the fifth domain, the, the, the capabilities on the cyberspace. The challenge is that uh, we still lack an overall national view, and this is shared with other countries, of where this plays when you have a conflict. And the question of can you deter, for example, and we, we cover this in detail in the report, but can you deter attacks by the use of cyber forces and, and cyber capabilities? And that's a very iffy proposition at this point in time. We do think as part of our recommendations that we need to have, again, more coalition building, more norms. And one of the things we point out that I think is is very clear is when we talk about norms, things that you would or would not do, for example, targeting election systems, those tend to work better with our friends than with our adversaries. But that's fine. We start with our friends. We come around a consensus. No one is going to interfere with election systems. That should be almost a basic understanding of what I'll call civilized countries. And you can build from that. Can I make one one more point? Sure. One of the other issues we touch on is one of the biggest divisions between the United States and the European Union has been around data privacy and data protection. I am very hopeful, and, and we touch on this, that we can come to a better understanding, especially in light of the risks and threats from Russia and China to our common economies. We need to find a way to deal with the controversies that still are out there over Snowden, et cetera, but build a transatlantic data consensus. It's incredibly important. So that's another one of our, our main recommendations. Guillermo Christensen is a partner at the law firm K&L Gates, member of the Council on Foreign Relations Task Force. Hey, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. We'll post this interview along with a link to the Council on Foreign Relations paper at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know sometimes we think of 
the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village. That was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, 
You know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2 Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.